and welcome to A Trek Through the Pages, a Star Trek tie-in novels podcast. I am Madeline. I'm Russ. And for this episode, we are reading the first book in the Star Trek Deep Space Nine Millennium Trilogy, The Fall of Terok Noor. Exciting. By Judith and Garfield Reeves Stevens. See, it's good that you introduced it because I did not have the author's names like right there. I was not ready. <laughs> I, I know I've read a few of theirs in general. I think they, they are good writers, the two of them. They've done a lot of Trek tie-in novels. So can you actually talk a little bit more about uh, what other sort of some background on them, what other books they've done? So I, I know they've obviously the other two books of this trilogy. Hold on. I should just look at my bookshelf. They co-wrote with William Shatner a whole lot of his Captain Kirk novels that he wrote starting in the mid-90s. So Ashes of Eden, The Return, Avenger, Spectre, Dark Victory, Preserver. So Those were all co-written with Shatner. We will probably return to some of their works in the future. Yes. <laughs> and they also did a short, the short story collection, uh, The Lives of Dax. All right, so they like Deep Space Nine. Yeah, they... They have uh, quite a few of DS9s. They have also written some non-Star Trek novels, none of which I've read. The Chronicles of Galen Sword. And it looks like they've also written for television. Yeah, they've actually got uh, five episodes of Enterprise to their credit. Interesting. Which ones? Uh, so we have The Forge. Observer Effect, United, Divergence, and Terra Prime. Uh, according to this, it looks like it's all season. These are all season four episodes. Interesting. So probably one of the better seasons. Terra Prime is the so it's the second to last episode, meaning it's the last good episode of Enterprise. <laughs> yeah, it, this is not that's not a bad. I like as as Enterprise writing credits go. That's not a bad run. Okay, that, that's good. Like, like we discussed, I don't, I have no experience with Enterprise, so beyond one episode. <laughs> if, if you've written for Enterprise, like there are episodes that you could have written that I would be like, oh wow, I'm um that that disposes me poorly towards you. But this is not, <laughs> this is not a bad run of ep of episodes of Enterprise. Some of them I just don't remember at all. Yeah, it looks like they did a few animated shows as well, the Mighty Ducks animated series. The Batman animated series? Nothing that has has particularly... I think they just wrote really at the wrong time for me to be. Like, <laughs> that was not when I was... Although the Batman the animated series, like, people were into that. Oh, yeah, that's... I mean, that's... We had a really good reputation as far as uh, Batman series go. So moving on to the thing that we are actually uh, talking about. <laughs> the Fall of Terak Noor. I'm just going to give the Kindle description. Fajor is in flames. The corridors of Terak-Nor echo with the sounds of battle. It is the end of the Cardassian occupation and the beginning of the greatest epic adventure in the saga of Deep Space Nine, TM. <laughs> six, years, <laughs> six years later, with the Federation losing ground in its war against the Dominion, the galaxy's greatest smugglers, including the beautiful and enigmatic Vash, rendezvous on Deep Space Nine. Their objective, a fabled lost orb of the prophets unlike any other, rumored to be the key to unlocking a second wormhole in Bajoran space, a second celestial temple. 
Almost immediately, mysterious events plague the station. Odo arrests Quark for murder. Jake and Nog lead Chief O'Brien to an eerie hollow suite in a section of the station that's not on any schematic. And the Cardassian scientist whom even the Obsidian Order once feared makes an unexpected appearance. With all these offense tied to a never-before-told story of the Cardassian withdrawal, Captain Benjamin Sisko faces the most dangerous challenge of his career. Unless he can uncover the secret of the lost orb, what began with the fall of Tarek Nor will end with the, discretion, with the destruction of Deep Space Nine, or worse. It's, uh, yeah, it's this big mystery about these missing orbs, these additional lost red orbs of Jalbador, which everybody is trying to sell and or buy and or hide and or deny exist. And it's tied into this thing that happened to Odo and Quark and kind of Garrick, although he barely takes place. He's very much on the periphery of the story. Like you really think that you would like put more Garrick into this story. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's like, well, because he shows up very much at the beginning during the initial event with Odo and Quark, and then he's... He just immediately fucks off. Well, yeah, I mean, it's pretty Derek. much. He pops in a couple <laughs> yeah. times, but for the most... He's talked about more than he's seen, Yeah, I think. Yeah. Basically, the structure of it, for the most part, is a mystery. Uh, it's the mystery of what's going on with the orbs, and it centers largely on... Cisco and Quark, I would say, are like the big driving characters uh, in terms of point of view and like who's doing the most moving pieces. Do you say that's accurate? Yeah, I'd say Jedzia so. is sort of the next biggest. Yeah, because she's kind of actually probably we probably should specify that you know since it does say it's taking place during the Dominion War, this is obviously roughly season six or so of DS9 before Jadzia's death. It's actually really specifically placed in time. It takes place in between uh, the penultimate episode of season six and the last episode of season six. They've just gotten back from the voyage in The Sound of Her Voice where they're all going to save that uh, dead woman who's already dead. Yes. Uh, so it's right before <laughs> it's right before Jadzia dies. Although they're really expanding that time to give her a lot more time alive. Uh, yeah, they are. <laughs> but that's okay. We'll allow we it. will <laughs> certainly allow Jadzia to be alive for longer. But yeah, like you were saying, she's very much kind of uh, investigation-wise, I guess, kind of driving things. If you, like, even more so than Odo is, even though Odo's a little more central to the plot, I guess, in terms of the mystery. There's this really great point where, cause Odo like starts it off as like, ah, yes, I'm Odo, I'm investigating. And then there's this really great moment where they realize, oh yes, Odo is in theory, potentially a suspect. Cause like he's part of the mystery. He's d doesn't remember what happened to him on the day of withdrawal, just like Quark, just like Garrick. And Quark says, okay, so do you want to take Odo off the investigation, and Cisco's just like, no. <laughs> I love it. Cisco always refuses to take Odo. This is entirely in character. This happens probably three times in DS9. I may be exaggerating, but it definitely does happen in DS9. Cisco always refuses to take Odo off the investigation. <laughs> he, trusts, he trusts Odo, right? 
trust trust is great but you like there's a reason you take people who are involved in investigations off the investigation <laughs> even if you trust them because they're, yes. <laughs> they're involved and they can't be fair and also you need people to trust the outcome of the investigation anyway Cisco's a bad manager. I feel that the contents of this book back me up on this. Uh, <laughs> anyway, after that point, however, Odo does largely drop out of the investigation. I think the big thing he does is pose as Morn. Yes. <laughs> yes, there, there's a lot of Morn in this book. Sometimes not as himself, but... <laughs> My... See, this is where I'm. This is where I'm just gonna be because I've watched Deep Space Nine twice in like a single year, uh, and it was this past year. <laughs> this is where I'm just gonna be like, oh yeah, I know every detail of Deep Space Nine canon. I like the like big surprise reveal that Morn is talking, but it's not Morn; it's actually Odo. Where in canon, the joke is Morn never talks, but actually they're always joking. Like the characters are always talking about how much Morn talks. So like. Mm -hmm. The character shouldn't be surprised by Morn Talk. <laughs> that's, that's a good point, actually. S slight error on the writer's side, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, for the most part, these, these writers are, are very in tune with the canon. I think they've probably watched uh, the show a lot, because uh, every time there would be yeah. a moment where I'd be like, that's not right. Like a page later, they'd address it. And there are even moments where I would be like, that feels like it's coming out of nowhere, like on the mystery side, like they end up on uh, the um, the moon that had turned into an energy moon, because that's where the orb was hidden. And it's sort of how the whole mystery comes together, was that yep. they hid it on a moon that turned into an energy moon. And I was like, that feels like it's coming out of nowhere. And then I remember that that's actually from the freaking show was that season one episode where they turn one of the moons into an energy moon. So it can have a little leeway. Yeah, yeah. So I'll give them more. Also, Thomas Riker. Yes. Shows up. Very. Thomas Riker does show up. On the, like, last page. <laughs> yes. As, a, as an aged version of himself, he's described, you know, white hair, white beard, wrinkles around the eyes. That's basically what Jonathan Frakes looks like. Yeah. I'm just thinking back to his appearance on the card this year. Yeah. Like, his hair might have been thinned out a little. A little bit, bit but he basically, he basically. Yeah. He does basically look the same. Yeah, he looks like Riker, a little like fuller, but like Riker with white hair. Yeah, a Riker who's very comfortable in retirement. Thomas Riker, and I am not kidding, is the best thing that Deep Space Nine ever did. Thomas Riker, Maquis agent. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was a fan of that I'm tr I don't remember the name of the episode I offhand, believe it's called Defiant when he, he, Okay, yeah, he, sh he shows up posing as Will Yeah Right? Yeah. yeah I was not super looking forward to this book's sequel I have to say, by the end of this book And then they threw Thomas Riker at me And now... <laughs> Now, I mean, what am I going to do? Not read about the adventures of Thomas Riker, I assume, fighting in some Bajoran militia? Like, <laughs> no. But uh, let's, let's get into the nitty gritty. Let's talk. Do you have notes? Do you have something you want to talk about? So one thing I, one person, I, I should say specifically, I wanted to mention, uh, 
is the Bajoran commander they introduce in this book, Ar- Arla Let's Reese. Let's talk about Arla Reese. Let's talk about Arla <laughs> okay. Reese. Because, so for one thing, now, obviously, you said you watched the series twice in the past year, so maybe you'll remember it. But I don't remember a lot of Bajorans like her, if any, ever showing up on the show. Bajorans who were not... Like diaspora Bajorans? Yeah. Like the devoutly, oh. you know, devoted to the prophets, or in the, some cases, the pot rates, <laughs> I guess. But she's just kind of... She's an atheist. The agnostic, atheist Bajoran, yeah. Right. So I thought you were going to talk about Bajorans who didn't grow up on Bajor, but... Because they're actually... They had a they had the couple of those, right? I don't remember any maybe. on DS9. Okay, maybe I'm thinking there of... There are TNG characters who it's unclear. Uh, so, okay. So, Ro Laren grew up in a, like, resettlement camp. She seems to have grown up sort of displaced in several ways. It's unclear whether... But she definitely grew up around Bajorans. Uh, and then right. there is a Bajoran on TNG whose name I can't remember, who we get in two episodes, who's in Starfleet, but her backstory is not clear. Like whether she, like Roe, was like in some sort of refugee camp and like joined Starfleet out of that, or whether she's sort of diaspora and was living outside of Bajor and Anyway, no. I don't think they ever introduced an atheist Bajoran on the show. She was interesting in that, like, I mean, like, she's present a lot in the first part of the book. And, you know, like, you, you kind of get her and Kira, or Kira, I guess, specifically being a little snippy with her. Everybody's cause... snippy with her. <gasps> <laughs> Nobody likes well, her. Well, snippy. I mean, like... I don't think O'Brien got snippy. I think O'Brien just got uncomfortable. Everybody's internal dialogue gets snippy with her. Whether they are outwardly snippy with her or not, everybody in their head is snippy with her. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Internally snippy, yes. Kira was outwardly snippy. Well, that's very Kira. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And they're snippy with her about her atheism, which to be fair is very in your face, but they are also inwardly snippy with her about um, just like every aspect of her being. Yeah, I mean, she's introduced, introducing, or not introducing, but she's going over a memo she's written for Cisco about how to uh, increase like the efficiency of, of the interactions between Bajorans and humans and other aliens on the uh, station. And Cisco basically says, this is great, but it's useless. Yes. <laughs> well, like, we, we know he's kind of starting to know because, you know, we got this, we got the little bit of, uh, you know, it, it's mentioned he picks up his baseball and he's playing with it from his desk and while she's talking. He's, like, ignoring her while she's talking. Um, yeah. He's zoning out. <laughs> and, then, and then he starts listening again, finally, and he's like, yeah, yeah, I've tried it all before. This is basically Starfleet nonsense. We don't do things the Starfleet way here. Starfleet's too rigid. You're too ensconced in Starfleet stuff. It's not going to work. Which is very much in tune with how we see him run things, I think, on the show. You know, he he, he runs things with a, a lot of leeway with respect to, you know, yeah. where they are. It's in character. <laughs> and then yeah. from that, they transition into 
she asks him about his thoughts on the prophets versus wormhole aliens. She starts talking about how, so she comes from sort of the diaspora. She, she did not grow up on Bajor. She grew up on like New Sydney and she thinks that the religious beliefs in Bajor are really holding, holding the culture back. She doesn't believe that the wormhole aliens are prophets. And Cisco's like, yeah, I don't like this conversation. And also I don't think that, I don't remember what his exact words are. So when she asks him, do you believe the wormhole aliens are the prophets? Yeah, I know some people call you the emissary and I don't mean to offend you, but you're an educated man. And Cisco's reply is, and as such, my eyes are open to the full range of wonder the universe contains. Basically, she keeps pushing him for an answer, and he basically comes to, I don't know. Like, he refuses to answer, and yeah. he's really annoyed by it. And then, after that, after all of that, she frickin' asks him out. <laughs> <laughs> so, like... I guess what I'm getting... That did feel a little out of nowhere. Yeah. And so he, like, kind of, like, nudges that aside by being like, I think you should meet my, you know, girlfriend. So then she has basically the same conversation with O'Brien, uh, who comes at it from another way by saying he believes in Idic, which felt a little off for me. I don't know. I don't... I guess I view O'Brien as being, like, the sort of quintessential Federation humanist like probably yeah. has not ever given a great deal of it's not even just that like he he's o'brien man he doesn't give a lot of thought to that <laughs> well he's kind of like the jack of all trades essentially on yeah station yeah so i know he's not if i remember his ranking he's not officially an enlisted officer of Starfleet, right? He's, he's uh, a, he's a, yeah, non-enlisted or whatever it is. is this, like his actual rank was, is like chief petty officer. Yeah. Right? So he's like lower <laughs> in, in rank than like everybody, but obviously yeah. he's got the respect of everybody because of his. Exactly. But he's, he sort of appears to, in the show, always approach things as really matter of factly. Like, I feel like he's not, He's an incredibly intelligent man who I don't think approaches things super philosophically. Yeah, that's that sounds right. You know, he he looks at what's in front of him. That's you know, I I think they I don't know if it's necessarily in this book, but they they've touched on that with his character in general. Like he he likes things that he can work on with his hands. You know, he likes having a problem that's in front of him that he can try to solve and fix. And a philosophical discussion isn't something he can go at with a. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not. I I'm blanking on like the t names of tools they might be using in the Star Trek offhand. Self like, which is the reason that they go back to that over and over. They don't want to think about yes. <laughs> names of tools. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and so, like, he just he. It seems to me that like if somebody were to ask him about religion, his answer wouldn't be anything about. Idic, it would be about, look, I don't know about religion. I know what's right and I know what's wrong and forget the rest of it. 
Anyway, this is an aside from my greater point. (laughs) (laughs) So she has a second conversation with O'Brien, which is really just an elaboration of her first conversation with Cisco about how backwards the Bajoran religion is, in which we are meant to again see how annoyed people are with her. It it feels like she's she's looking for somebody to validate that opinion, and she knows she's not going to get it from another Bajoran. Well, sure. Right. But so, okay, so she's been, she's been wrong and naive about the, what we should do on the station, like with, with how people interact. She's arrogant and like dismissive about the Bajoran religion and she annoys everybody with it. Uh, She's pushy and she tries to ask out Cisco in like a complete misreading of a situation. And then we get the scene with her and Cisco and O'Brien on the Defiant where they try to leave her in control of the Defiant and she's like, I can't fly this freaking ship. And the way the, the characters read it is like, how dare you not seize control of this grand opportunity to be in control of the ship? <laughs> like, which for me, I'm like, she's not, it's not her job. <laughs> she's never been taught to fly this ship she hasn't but i think to an extent that might be looking at more from what her rank is in starfleet she's a full commander i mean sure but like lots of people get promoted to commander through many different tracks true and i don't think they ever actually gave us what background she was from, whether it was engineering, security, medical, whatever. Troy could get com- promoted to commander very easily. Wasn't she, like, about to get promoted to commander in TNG? She was, like... She was. I know she was at, She was lieutenant commander at, by, at the end of the series, correct? Right. Like, you, would you want Troy flying the starship? <laughs> I mean, maybe not necessarily. But I would think as part of the bridge crew, she'd have basic training, right? Enough to fly the ship by herself? No, we had a whole episode. <laughs> by herself? No, how, maybe not. But how that wasn't a great idea. In a idea. pinch. In a pinch. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, it's not her job. More to the point, why is this one character... Like, I get that she's probably being set up to be a villain in the second book, now that I see what the second book is. But, like, why is this one character being the worst person in every conceivable way? <laughs> like, just every conceivable way. That, that'll be learned when we continue the story. <laughs> I, th- I think. Like I said, it's been a long no, time. No, <laughs> I assume it's because she's going to be a villain in the second book. But I also feel like maybe a villain could be, like, either naive or incompetent or, like, arrogant like they don't have to be like all of those things and the every character hates them but mostly it's just i feel like there was an opportunity for some interesting discussion of something that the show never really did bring up in an interesting way which is the idea of like inter bajoran discussion of atheism and what does it mean I have a note. So the idea is like inter-Bajoran discussion of atheism because the show never really brings that up. Everybody on Bajor seems to be 
even if they don't worship the prophets the same way, they all worship the prophets. They all believe. Something. I mean, the, the biggest conflict religion-wise we see on the show is the po- prophets and the pirates. Yeah. And I'm generally so... Like, I was so interested in Deep Space Nine bringing religion into Star Trek. And I think that there is so much interesting space for an interesting story to be told about the friction between a more atheistic society and a very religious society, but also a not like a a society that's not religious entirely in one way, like with nuance. A more like agnostic? Not not agnostic, but like a society that has in much the same way that earth is not like all religious like we've got different right right i know there is a word but... for that and i'm also forgetting <laughs> whatever <it. laughs> this is a great podcast we know words um yeah the idea, <laughs> the idea that they had space to like really drill into the Bajoran religion and like give it some different sects and different shades and different arguments within it like there was so much space for that and i i it would have been nice to actually get an interesting take on atheism within it. Yeah, like you said, she's kind of written off by everybody. (laughs) (laughs) But actually, there's one line in terms of the way that this book deals with religion that I'm kind of fascinated by and can't stop thinking about. And it is a line of hers. It's from when she's talking to Cisco. Sir, don't you think there's a difference, a profound difference, between having the attributes of a god and being a god? And Cisco says, yes, I do. So that's kind of the driving question of this book, right? It's, are they wormhole prophets or are they aliens? And sometimes that's the driving question of religion in Deep Space Nine. Not always. But I do kind of wonder, is that like the most interesting question that you can ask? It's sci-fi and they've created this setup where there's a whole planet full of people who have gods that they can meet. Like, can you imagine being a worshiper in a religion where you can meet your god? I can imagine it would be an overwhelming experience. How is the interesting question there are you an alien or are you a god? The Bajoran religion really only pertains to Bajor. So like if they're aliens or if they are something else, what does it matter? Why can't aliens be gods? If you worship them, if they have a divine, like if they have a plan for you that you truly believe is beyond your comprehension and is wise and is good and that you're part of it, Why can't that be sacred to you? And so I always just sort of felt like, and this sort of book was sort of just bringing it up to me, why can't the answer to this question that people just seem to be so hung up on, that yes, they're wormhole aliens, but also they are like (laughs) my prophets. (laughs) I wish wish there were a nicer (laughs) atheist. Yeah, I mean, they probably could have written her maybe a little less uh, abrasive. I think would be the word or maybe just kind of had people's reactions be 
I, I, I feel like if yeah. somebody comes up and just starts like ranting about how the religion of Bajor is backwards, it's like cool to be like really annoyed by that person. Well, I think part of it is so. I mean, obviously, she's new to the station in the book, and all of you know the characters that we know they've been on that station living there and working with Bajorans for six years minimum at least in the case of Odo and Quark much longer and you know I think um, even if they don't necessarily believe in the prophets themselves as as gods they they've accepted them as part of the culture they're working in. Absolutely. No, absolutely. It's like you you don't have just because you're living there, working there whatever, you don't have to believe in what the person working in the next uh Jeffrey's tube believes. No. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> right? She's she's coming in and she's not like being respectful. And she probably feels like she doesn't have to be this is her space but i feel like certainly kira for instance probably doesn't feel like it's her space she's not from here she's from new sydney right and we see that with like you know some of the a couple of the times where kira is in the same room as her as her or talking to her or at least in a conversation about her she's just it's mentioned that kira is talking through gritted teeth or she's you know she makes she makes it a point to point out you know she wasn't here for the occupation. She wasn't part of the resistance. Yeah, very in keeping with Kira. Yes, because <laughs> you know we know who Kira is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. You know what's weird about Bajoran religion? What's that? I feel like everybody always forgets that Kai Wen blew up a school. <laughs> actually, now that you mention it, I might have actually forgotten yep. that. Well. Kaiwen blew up a school. <laughs> she she's not exactly a great person. No. You know what else everybody forgets about Bajoran religion? <laughs> What's that? Sixty years ago they had a caste system. That's true. That I remember. <laughs> <laughs> I just like to put these things out there because several times in this book, Cisco says things like you know, the Bajoran religion is not usually confrontational. And, <laughs> and they're, they're, they're kind of like live and let live. And uh, I just really, I just really wanted to set it out there that maybe Cisco is not 100% unbiased in his assessment of the Bajoran religion. <laughs> no, he... Um... He he might have been uh, a little generous there. If we stay on the subject of Bajoran religion, we did kind of get the introduction of that third, I guess, sect of it with uh, Prylar. Prylar Obanek. Obanek. Yep. Obanek. 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 Yeah. So they're like the Pa Wraith cults, except that they are much vaguer and they worship the true prophets who are again very vague it's like they they aren't the pa wraiths and they aren't the they aren't the typical prophets but they are something yeah <laughs> they're they're some third thing 
Yeah. So he calls it the one true way. Yep. Sounds ominous. <laughs> yeah. So we have some internal Cisco dialogue. <gasps> this is when he says that Bajoran religion isn't usually confrontational. I yes, yes, there it is. So he, he was well aware there were many sects on Bajor, uh, many different ways of interpreting holy texts, the prophets, and their actions. But for all these different approaches, Bajor, Bajoran religion was rarely, if ever, confrontational. All but a few Bajoran religions were based on one central tenet of the prophet's undeniable existence. But past that point, any group was free to go its own way. Unless you didn't want to be part of the caste system. Or listen to the emissary. Yes. <laughs> this is just another part of it right here. Bajor was unique among most worlds of the Federation in that, in the face of such diversity, religious intolerance did not appear to exist. It's not <laughs> true, Cisco. You're so <laughs> wrong. Uh, anyway, so Cisco's next piece of dialogue to the Prylar. You will forgive me, but I've seen on Bajor there appear to be many ways to worship the prophets. Many ways, Obanik agreed, but only one way that is correct above all others. He mentions the false prophets, but he does not consider the power race to be the true prophets. Yeah, he's he's just extremely vague. It's like the true the true prophets are like something to do with Jalvador and like he gets cut off. And every time every time Cisco questions him, he just answers with more vagueness. Uh, what is the true way? The one true way is that path which shall be revealed when no other paths remain to be chosen. And this is like religious horror movie dialogue. Yeah, he's not super convincing. Uh, I assume he'll come back in the next book as the leader of some army Here, here's as specific as he gets understanding is simple to those whose minds are open captain cisco when the temple is restored there will be no false paths to choose from no false prophets no pares no good no evil simply the one true temple the one true prophets and the one true way to a glorious new existence beyond this one all right so they're gonna open a new wormhole and then it'll all be clear yeah, exactly all right great <laughs> So we Simple. got we got this fun new aspect to the Bajoran religion, which makes things much worse than they already were, according to Cisco. <laughs> <laughs> you know what else Kaiwin did? What's that? <laughs> she teamed up with the military to stage a coup. She did. Oh, <laughs> well, there's uh, we could also you know and. The episode of the series the reckoning she stopped that from happening she, she has her good moments that's true that's true <laughs> she saved jake she saved jake I when guess. cisco was going to let him be possessed by a demon and die <laughs> for religion that is not exactly great parenting. At this point in the series, I would like to point out that that had happened about five episodes ago. <laughs> that's that's right. Yeah, that was season six. Yes. That... <laughs> I would like to place this all within the broader context for our listeners. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's... That's kind of the religion of it all, I guess. That kind of 
And we talked about Arla. She's the big sort of original character who shows up. There are there are smaller ones, the um, sort of mercenaries and smugglers who show up. None of them get a ton of characterization. Yeah, the the Andorian sisters that you know kidnap Quark. They're, they're there. there. There's they kidnap him. They try to kill him. Try to kill a few other people along the way. There's base. He's Ferengi. He who might be half Klingon. I mean, he should be half Klingon. That would be much more interesting. He has hair. He has hair. He is described as having hair. And he wields a batleth, a miniature batleth. It's cool. <laughs> We've never seen that from a Ferengi. No. There's the Cardassian bad guys who are like trying to find the orbs. Uh, Liege Terrell, I think, is the leader, the scientist, yeah. right? Yeah, and the cool thing about her is, uh, and this is, again, one of those ways that you can tell that these people have actually watched the show a lot, Uh there's a reason that they didn't just immediately uh, default to making her a guy. There's a reason she's a girl. Cardassian scientists are women. That's established in the show. In an episode that I can't remember the name of. I'm trying to remember a specific episode now. It's when the Cardassian... It's like an early season episode. The Cardassian scientists show up on uh, Deep Space Nine for like some exchange or something. They're all women. Uh, one of them flirts, I believe, with O'Brien, and then one of them turns out to be an Obsidian Order spy. Of course. <laughs> we also, I, I also remember one of the companion Cardassians is described, uh, I forget his name, but he's, uh, he's bald. Yes, and very interesting for that fact. Yes, because we don't, we, you know, just like base uh, for a, a Ferengi with hair is not something we ever saw on the show. We also never saw a Cardassian who ha- didn't have hair like jet black hair yeah on their head yeah we uh we like to imagine interesting things in our books we do <laughs> but Liege, for the most part is just a bad guy uh she's just a mad scientist yeah. slash obsidian order ish kind of person trying to get the orbs to take over the galaxy she i assume will probably show back up She's dead. Uh, I'm making air quotes <laughs> for the listeners. I am making air quotes. <laughs> the much more interesting thing to me than the original characters are the guest stars who show up. I already talked about Thomas Riker, who showed up for the last page, but also in this book, my favorite character, Vash. <laughs> Vash. In all her glory. Vash is there. She's here. (laughs) She's stealing orbs or something. She's selling (laughs) orbs. I don't even know what she's doing. Whatever. She's around. She's faking her own death. No, no, no. Faking her assassination (laughs) attempt. Yes. Yes. She's flirting with Bashir. She's doing what she does. Saving Quark. Who cares? It's great. (laughs) Ugh. Do anything you want, Vash. Anything you want. (laughs) I would follow you to the ends of the galaxy. (laughs) Love her. (laughs) She is great. And in character. Yes. very. She's very in character. So obviously you had to watch a bit of TNG as well to kind of make sure you got that right. I think they reference her adventures with Q a little bit. Yeah, well, I mean, that's where these characters last saw her. Yeah. Every book should have Vash in it. Just everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's, you know, our main characters. 
It's got a lot of quark, obviously. You know, we've talked a lot about Cisco, not quite so much about quark yet. Yeah, this this book started with two chapters of quark. Yeah, <laughs> and that's a lot more than you might usually get outside of a if you were watching the show a Ferengi centric episode. Yeah, that's a that's a way to sell your book to me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, it's a lot of quark, and he was sort of doing his thing. I thought he was fine. <laughs> <laughs> in his own quirk way yeah it's it pretty he's pretty much very he's very much in character oh for, yeah for this no book. he's he's totally in character i mean quirk is at his best when he gets to sort of function as the sort of needle poking the main characters when he gets to sit a little bit in judgment even if it's even if he's a little bit wrong because he's still quirk yeah when he gets to provide that outside perspective this book obviously did not give him a lot of reason for that, though there was one scene where I just hated everyone in it. So they're in the med bay and he's trying to explain why he didn't kill anybody. He didn't kill the, the um, Cardassians whose bodies they've just found. And he's saying, look, you know what? I am a respected member of this community <laughs> and like you can be like amused all you want but you were the one who wanted me to stay you asked me to stay to be an example of others to try and keep this place together and Cisco's like and I'll quote as I recall first I had to threaten to put Nog in jail and Quark's like okay whatever but I did, I stayed, and aren't things thriving, right? Because I'm still here, I'm still doing what you wanted me to do. And Kira's like, and again I'll quote, let's not forget you made considerable profit at the same time. And I'm like, fuck both of you. <laughs> fuck both of you for making me side with Quark. <laughs> he did in fact do exactly what you asked him to do. And also Cisco, how is it that you think you saying I had to threaten to put your nephew in jail makes you the good guy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not exactly great because, you know, when we're introduced to Nog, he's, I mean, he's, I, I don't know if they ever actually specify his but age, like but he's, he's roughly, yeah, he's roughly a teenager like Jake is. <laughs> Just, you know, with a little bit more penchant for getting into trouble. I don't remember exactly what it was he did that, like, that Cisco caught him, Odo caught him for, or whatever, that Cisco was bargaining with. Whatever. The point is, he's like a kid. He's a rapscallion. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, screw you, Kira. Screw you, Cisco. I did not want to side with Quark. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Quark, so he was kind of cast in an interesting role in, like, other parts of the book, too, because there's parts of the book where he's the one I mean this specifically pertains to the the day of the withdrawal when he's talking about that and his conversations with Odo and Odo's ducking questions about his memories of that day and Quark is the one calling him out on bullshit so I mean we we got a little bit of Quark like the straight shooter yes well I like, there are points in this book where I think I side with Quark and I'm just not totally sure I'm meant to. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, no, I mean, Quark definitely provides that perspective. He's gonna say exactly what he believes and always be on his side, yeah. his own side. And sometimes that means that he points things out that other people are just not gonna. Yeah. He'll point, especially when it does benefit him, because, you know, like with this, he's talking about how he can't remember. He knows Odo can't, and Odo is lying. But it's like, all right, but this makes Quark look good next to Odo, which is not, not a comparison Quark can win very often. There's a, there's a line from Cisco that has nothing to do with Quark. Not for the first time, Cisco observed that Jadzia and Jake were alike, in that they both knew exactly how far they could push him, and when they reached that point without success, they backed off without recrimination. Quark, Quark doesn't do that. And you know what? <laughs> the best thing about Quark is that he doesn't do that, because frankly, sometimes Cisco needs recrimination. And yeah. the worst thing about Quark is that he only does it when it's Quark who's on the line. Just going over the other returning characters that had roles in the book. And it, this was a small thing, but I liked, um, I think it's fairly early on in the book, I want to say. One of the earlier chapters where Chief O'Brien's talking about you know, working with Rom and how much he respects Rom and how, you know, how far Rom has come as a you know, kind of junior engineer, I guess, for the station. In terms of his work Rom. ethic and everything, everything to do with Rom is great. <laughs> Rom is a very good character. I, I, I know on the show he he's. I don't. They took a while to kind of develop him, and he's kind of in the background early on with like some other random unnamed Ferengi, I think. But eventually, they do expand on him. Yeah, he takes a little bit to get there, but he's fantastic, and I like that this book lets him be really this is not a book where everyone is competent but this is certainly a book where rom is very competent and i like i liked that interaction between o'brien and rom where o'brien is like letting rom have the space to really come into his own and show how good he is like o'brien knows the answer but he's letting rom show that he also knows it he's yeah he's letting him find his way there you know without like jumping into correct him and that struck me as a really good o'brien moment as well like that struck me as being very in character for o'brien so bashir is not in this book a super lot uh most of his scenes <laughs> are with jadzia and largely they are about his and jadzia's romance which i don't think is great but hey it's not out of character for Bashir to be hung up on somebody? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Look, if we want to get into a rant about how Deep Space Nine rewrote Jadzia and Bashir in season six, <laughs> we will be here for a really long time. Anyway, the book is very tapped into an absolutely canon dynamic that was there at this point in the series. It's just not a particularly likable dynamic from either side. Supremely not likable from Bashir's side, which we don't get to see. And Jadzia's narration isn't even super likable. Like, she's very aware of it, and she's... <sighs> There's a... Here. I, I have a... I have a note. 
But the truth was that she herself had found that joining with Dax had been incredibly liberating. It was exhilarating to be able to decide to do anything at all, and that included indulging herself in harmless flirting with Julian, right up to taking part in the most erotically charged physical challenge in the quadrant, euphemistically called wrestling Gallo Galeo Manata style. And because she was joined, anything she chose to do was all acceptable. Right? So this is coming off of the idea that she's thinking that, like, she's joined and so she can just, anytime she does something weird, she can just write it off as, like, oh yeah, that's Emony coming through. And the thing is, like, I don't think that that's out of character. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, anyway, it's not super likable, any of this dynamic from either direction. And I super wish that the show had not done it. And I, I see what you're saying there. Yeah, it's, you know, she's, she's just kind of using him, I guess, in that situation, right? Kind of just for her own kicks. Yeah, like, I don't even think she's maybe. using him. I just think she's like, this is fun. I know he's into me. I don't care. Like, I can do it. And I'm gonna. Like, it, it, is not, it is not the most, like, empathetic of internal monologues to just be like, yeah, I can do that. These people who are, one thinks, friends. But also, Bashir's side is also not super likable in this book either. We just don't get the actual monologue. And neither is Worf's side. I don't like any, anybody involved in this. See, you know, another one of the things. I don't like this entire situation. Let's not do it. <laughs> well, you know, I didn't think of this a lot when I was reading, but we we don't have a whole lot of Worf in this no, book either. No, he shows up at the beginning for one incredibly in-character moment and then kind of fucks off. Right. It, it just kind of another one of those characters. He's talked about more than we actually end up seeing. He's not really talked about very much, but yeah. Well, we're kind of get, given the impression he's he's running things in the ops while Cisco is off doing a whole lot of other yeah, stuff. Yeah, basically, like, everybody else is doing caught up in this orb shit, and Worf is, like, running the ship. But yes, this is the most in-character Worf moment. Jadzia and Worf are talking about the, de the deal with Quark. They're talking about Odo's investigation. Jadzia says, does he have any new leads? Worf blinked at his wife. Why would he need new ones? I'm going to do a Worf voice. Uh, it, <laughs> it, took a, it took a moment for Jedzia to realize what Worf was actually saying. Worf, Quirk didn't kill the Andorian. All the evidence points to him. All the circumstantial evidence. Worf got to his feet. <laughs> it is my understanding that the evidence is more than circumstantial. See, that's a great Worf moment. That is exactly <laughs> Worf. At this point, they have zero evidence that Quark has killed that Andorian. Just zero evidence. But, you know, Worf is a very... very black and white for his uh, sense of justice. And I think, that, you know, it's a kind of a... the Klingon. In yeah, him. and he's like, no. Really coming no, out. No, that's Quark. Of course Quark killed that dude. Like... <laughs> <laughs> and Jake. Jake. Yes, Jake. My favorite. <laughs> My favorite Jake. I like that this book gives Jake superpowers. 
<laughs> writing-based superpowers. Yes, he is, he's writing a heist novel. Yeah, and since he's a writer and he's writing a mystery, he can figure out what's going on in real-life mysteries by, like, figuring out... He just figures out what the factors would have to be to create the circumstances in a mystery novel. And he's like, well, clearly there's a missing orb. Somebody's selling Obviously. an orb. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to remember what the name of his book was. The Ferengi Connection. Or as Nog calls it, the Ferengi Correction. <laughs> Which I think is also based on a an episode, because I think there's an episode where Jake is shadowing Quark to figure out like what he does. I think you're right. I I don't remember what episode that might be, but neither do I. Like a lot of the episodes get mixed up in terms of like the B plots. Yeah, that's de that definitely doesn't sound like an A, a plot for an <laughs> no. episode. I don't think. No, Jake shadows Quark to get a sense of what he's doing for his novel. It does not seem like it's going to drive an A plot. On the other hand, there was an episode whose A plot was Jake and Nog try to get a baseball card for. Cisco. So you never know. <laughs> the thing about Jake is like, he's such a tonally weird character that yeah, you can totally do that with Jake. You can just be like, Jake is here in this book and his deal is his writing gives him magical abilities to know what's going on in the real world. And he's just going to help us solve the mystery. And yep, totally. Sure. That works. <laughs> but like you could also have Jake be in your book and his deal would be like Jake is here to provide like emotional stakes in his sweet coming of age story and like that would work too this just went one direction rather than the other you could also put Jake at the center of like a noir story that would work Jake is an endlessly flexible character <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, you you need someone like that, right? Or it's it's good if you can work that into your show. That's why Jake should have been in more stories. Although I, th I think he stayed in the main, you know, opening credits the entire run. He was in the opening credits always, uh, leading me to have to wonder whether this would be the episode where I would get my Jake fix. Frankly, they should have put Nog in the opening credits at some point. By the end of the show, there were a few actors who I really felt like they could have bump them up to that main level nog i, I would have put garrick in the, the thing is credits. i think over the course of the series garrick was only in like 30 episodes he felt like he's there a lot more I know. <laughs> but by that last season i mean i haven't counted because he was out for like an episode or two when he was getting his like leg fixed by the end nog is in pretty much every episode right like, through season six because oh, he's he's uh enlisted yeah, he's, an he's an ensign at that point so like yeah I, at the point that Nog becomes an ensign and he's assigned to Deep Space Nine, I'd say fuck it and yeah, I'd say yeah. Put 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 Aaron Eisenberg in yeah. those credits. But I feel like they were probably like, yes, yes, we have a very large cast. <laughs> they they probably would have had to bump his pay for that yeah. too. And I'm sure the studio was just like, no, we are yeah. actually fine with our cast the way it is. Oh, I do want to say one thing. So the 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 thing about. Ferengi not being uh, susceptible to telepathy. So that's sort of what a lot of the plot hinges on. That's why Quark is involved at all. Is from an episode. It's from The Forsaken. It's the first time that Loxana Troy shows up 
on Deep Space Nine. Uh, she says she can't read Ferengi. Totally good, deep canon cut. However, I would just like to say there is another deep canon cut, Profit Motive, where the Negus gets fucked up by some orb shit. And the Prophets, like, turn him good and philanthropic. So, I don't know, man. Just leaving that one out there. Oh! Oh! Oh my god! We didn't talk about Vic! Oh. Oh, that's right. Vic does show up in this very briefly, but he does show up. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. What's a Deep Space Nine novel without Vic Fontaine, everybody's favorite character? <laughs> <laughs> Your favorite, everyone's favorite uh, 50s era, or maybe earlier, 50, yeah, 50s era launch singer. When Vic Fontaine's not on screen, all of the characters should be asking, where's Vic? Well, we know where he is. He's, al- he's always in the holodeck or holo suites, holo suites. Because his character is running, or his program is running eternally at this point, right? Twenty-seven hours a day. I think it's yeah. that. I think that's how long no, a day is on not, station, right? We're not yet at that point. That doesn't start until after it's only a paper moon, when Nog oh, makes okay, the deal right. because he helps to help Nog. Actually, the weirdest thing about Vic's appearance in this book is that all of the characters are like annoyed by Vic. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's true. They were, and he was, well, he was also a little glitchy when he showed yeah. up, and confused, very confused, <laughs> which didn't quite seem like him because, you know, he's he is self aware. He knows he's a hologram. He's in the know. Yeah. Yeah, he knows he's a hologram. He he knows you know, he's not actually living in the fifties. He's in the twenty third century, and all these people are like they have scientific concepts that like would shatter his world if he was a real person I, it was just very strange to be like seeing a scene with vic where the characters were like oh my god vic instead of being like vic <laughs> i mean he helps them he though, does right so should they have should have been a little happy to see him right like i would have been like you would think in this situation they'd be like oh my god it's vic he's here to save us I really hope in the next book or whenever it is that they save Deep Space Nine, because, oh, by the way, guys, at the end of this book, Deep Space Nine gets destroyed. Again, air (laughs) quotes. Um, But whenever it is that they save Deep Space Nine and they see it again, like, their number one concern is seeing that Vic is all right. (laughs) (laughs) Someone's got to check those hollow circuits. Yeah. ASAP. Yeah. God, it's important. There was another small, another small, small thing in the book that stuck out to me. This wasn't Vic related. <laughs> like, but really? From the very, very beginning, when we're still in the day of the withdrawal. And now we never actually given Odo's point of view on this, but he pretty much flat out says he's going to let the Cardassians kill Quark. And that's, that's pretty dark for Odo. Well, okay, but is it very dark for Odo? <laughs> So, let's see, what's he saying? 52 hours ago, Terok Nor seems to be a protectorate of the Bajoran Cooperative Government. Martial law was declared under the provisions of the Cardassian Uniform Code of Military Justice. Quark waited and waited. And then, you know, it says, Quark says, and? And Oda's reply is, Quark, I heard the charges that Glenn read against you. You have rigged your Dabo table. You do water your drinks. You short-time the holosuites and inflate the tabs you run for customers who've consumed too much alcohol to be able to keep track of their spending. 
Under military law, the Cardassians were within their legal rights to execute you. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, this is very dark. <laughs> I would argue it is not out of character. I don't recall Odo ever letting somebody get executed while he just watched before. Oh, you have forgotten an episode, my friend. Oh, have I? Yes. Uh-oh. It's right. called Things Past. Things Past. Well, I will also say this was Day of the Withdrawal, so, you know, Odo's not living among the Federation <laughs> under Bajoran government for at this moment. Uh, so... It is an episode, Things Past, in which Odo, Garrick, Sisko, and Jadzia are transported back in time to Terak-Nor under the occupation in the bodies of Bajorans, and they see a sort of investigation that is taking place under the head of security at the time, who is looking for uh, some Bajoran resistance people who have attempted to assassinate Gold Ducat, and at the end it is revealed that the head of security is not a Cardassian as they think it is, but it is in fact Odo. And Odo stands by and watches some Bajorans who may or may not be resistance fighters be executed. Okay, this is, this is sounding familiar. And throughout that, he sends, like some people, prisoners, off to Cardassia and labor camps and other places. Odo was a head of security on Terak Nor. <laughs> he absolutely watched people be executed. He absolutely sent people off to Cardassian justice. It's, it's, that's the interesting thing about Odo. It's the bad thing about Odo. Right? It's the fundamental right. question of Odo, right? It's what is justice? Is it order? Is it, is it who's in charge? Is it the law? Or is it like this question of what is right? And this is Odo on the day of withdrawal. This is Odo who has never worked for the Federation. This is Odo who's friends with Kira, but like doesn't yet have the years that we've seen him growing to like reckon with his legacy as a founder. Absolutely, Odo's gonna let Quark get executed. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay, that's a good point. Yeah, I, I, so I definitely have forgotten that episode, so I probably should. Well, maybe I'll just re I could rewatch it. I suppose I have Netflix and CBS, so <laughs> it's a good episode. Although I think that, like some DS Nine episodes, it comes within an inch of fully grasping what it's about, and then doesn't quite. Certainly, it gives one some deeper perspective on Odo as a tool of the Cardassian occupation. <laughs> <laughs> like I watched that episode and I came out of it wondering how Kira could ever be friends with Odo. Well, she's No, she I was going to say she's not close to him at the start they of the are series. Are good she? friends at the start of the series. Okay. Um so maybe I'm I'm thinking of They have else. their own specific history. Uh he saved her life under the occupation. 
by basically making an exception for her. He knew she was resistance and let her go. Okay, yeah. See, this is just proof I need like more hours of the day so I can rewatch more <laughs> things. <laughs> this is the closest that this book comes to like really engaging with like what I find interesting about Odo. That sort of darker past of his, not the Odo we got used to in seven years I yeah guess. but also like i think that like the interesting stories on deep space nine with odo in the present really deal with this they're like his stories about all of the stories of odo as like a founder or about his relationship with the founders really are about this uh they're about order versus justice and about like that heritage and so his desire to belong to the founders really butts up against this new understanding that he's coming to have about things like the difference between order and justice and the founders different sort of conception of that it's uh it's an interesting spot to start us <laughs> i guess with odo and uh quark when we get, when you jump in when you jump into the book it really is <laughs> And to then spend the rest of the book having it be like, Odo's got Cork under arrest slash protective custody. <laughs> Which to Cork might as well be the I, same yeah, thing. <laughs> uh, this is just kind of another small character thing. Uh, it, it's kind of, there's a moment of, or a couple moments, I guess, of like Ferengi vanity on Cork's part. <laughs> he, uh, he makes reference to like, and maybe there was an episode of the show where they touched on this, but he, how his fangs are artfully stained. Right, and, and twisted, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of the the twisted world of the Ferengi in that regard. It's kind of, I thought I thought it was a nice little piece in there, kind of de detail wise. Yeah, I guess for the for the culture. This book is very like up on Ferengi culture. They are, they are not, Yes. <laughs> I would say there was, of the entire book, there was only one place where I was like, that's not Ferengi, uh, <laughs> where they said that one of the rules of acquisition was you can't buy fate. The, the Ferengi don't believe there's anything you can't buy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like everything else, everything else, I felt like this book was really interested and invested in Ferengi culture. Yes, which you kind of have to be if you're going to have a Ferengi be one of your main point of view characters. Yeah, I, they must have referenced like a dozen rules of acquisition, including several, I think, that were not in the series. I think I think you're right. I'm trying to remember this. I'm sure there's a website that lists sure. them all out somewhere. Sure. <laughs> all right. Well, then I guess let's wrap this up. Thanks for listening to A Trek Through the Pages. Next time, we'll be reading Imzadi by Peter David, uh, which is a very famous Star Trek tie-in novel. Uh, in the meantime, please rate, review, subscribe, and stay trekky. <laughs> That's a great sign-off. All right. Stay trekky. Stay trekky. <laughs>